Constructing your life is about much more than just building a bank account. Each week, join real estate entrepreneur and mindset coach Austin Linney as he interviews guests who are constructing their dream lives and impacting the world around them on a daily basis. If you're an entrepreneur or wanting to start a business, or you just want to hear motivating stories of how others have overcome the odds, you are in the right place. And now for your host, Austin Linney. Guys, welcome back to Construct Your Life. Uh, this is Austin Linney. Uh, I have a special guest here today. I'm going to give him his nickname, and I'm just going to keep saying it because I want it to stick. Uh, this is Jake Harris, the rain man of real estate, uh, the one and only. How are you doing, bud? Uh, I'm fantastic. Uh, enjoying this beautiful weather. And, uh, well, it's late. I don't know. Uh, it seems like the <laughs> 900th day of April, yeah. uh, you know, whatever day it actually is in 2020. And so I don't know when your episode will actually air, yeah. but uh, it, it feels like the 900th day of April. Sometime in May. I can't wait to see you in person again. It's been a while. Uh, San Antonio misses you. Uh, so guys, Jake is uh, a developer, a flipper. I mean, there's so many things, hotel projects, uh, you know, multi-level complex, you know, new construction ground up so many things um you know and i'm really thanks that he's here right now um he's always been uh, an advocate of young investors and and, and getting in and, and doing the work and so what we're going to talk about today is how he got started and where he's going and uh so jake why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory get us started here yeah as far as uh, i am the managing partner of a of a private equity real estate company we primarily invest in secondary and tertiary markets. Um, that was a fancy way to say just a little bit smaller cities. Uh, we primarily invest in San Antonio, uh, a little bit in Austin, Cincinnati, uh, and some of these other markets. We we flip and, and we do three main things as far as investment thesis is so opportunistic is we're looking for deals. We buy a lot of stuff at courthouse steps, distressed real estate uh, throughout the country. And we've done, I don't know, over a thousand flips in 26 states. Uh, we do development. So ground up projects. Uh, again, that's uh, primarily focused on the urban core within a, a two to three mile uh, radius of downtown wherever, and then value add. So we buy buildings, we fix them up and then keep them for cash flow. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's overall, in a nutshell, kind of what I do. Thousand percent. And uh, personally, I'd like to just get this barb in here. Thank you so much because I just sold one of my houses right by your development. We appreciate the uptick on the price for a foot. Thank you, Mr. Harris. I'll be buying you dinner next time I see you. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, we're, we're a small part of that. Obviously, we're looking for things and identifying the markets sure. that have upside potential. and. Um, you make your money when you buy, you don't make mm -hmm. your money when you sell it. And yeah. so when we look at that is, is spend a lot of time in demographics and makeups of what's happening in the market and then where those opportunities lie. And, and that's where we kind of place our capital. And so we're looking at certain indicators and job growth and population growth and affordability indexes, infrastructure, bonds. Uh, and we kind of take a little bit few layers deeper than I think uh, a few other people. Yeah. And that's what I love about you. You, you really have the data down. I mean, y'all spent, you know, a year or two researching cities to go to. So from a person that's getting started in the business, just mean, let's just say an investor and he's looking to buy a couple properties and there's going to be some opportunities coming out at the other end of this. What are the signs that, that you as your team is looking for just from a, let's say a single family point of view or a small multifamily? What are the what are the factors that really judge whether you should buy in that market per se? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I look at this is that it's always a good time to buy. It just depends on the price that you're paying. Like I said, it's you, uh, you make your money when you buy. And so you need to have a, a margin of safety. I know, uh, uh, Warren Buffett and and kind of uh, you know uses that and coins that term of margin of safety and so when we look at that is most people you evaluate that as a discount to the after repair value so you need to be able to uh, determine what is that house 
apartment, retail center, hotel, whatever it is, after repairs value and or after built value or whatever that is and, and to establish what that market value is and then to buy at a discount to that. Uh, that gives you your kind of your margin of safety. Some people are willing to accept lower returns, less margin of safety uh, because the economy is going up. And I think right now we're staring at the precipice of a recession. And so I would advise people to have a greater margin of safety. And then also within that margin of safety is understanding your timing in which you are going to execute your plan. So having a plan for that asset and time uh, sometimes can solve or cure some of your sins, uh, but it also at the, the flip side can also kill uh, a lot of deals is taking too long, getting eaten up in, in carrying cost or taxes or a combination of that is. So when we look at things, it's not so much as we identify a market or a house. What we're doing is we have a plan that which we're enacting is here's what we're going to do. We're going to flip this property and we can do that in 90 days. What is that value in 90 days given X, Y, and Z? And then we have a margin of safety and you're going to buy it at a discount to that market value minus your repair value or just a timing factor. And so that's how we go in and look at it there are certain things from a development standpoint that we're looking at for markets. We want a, uh, a better appreciating market versus the declining market because the development cycle is much longer. It could be into the many, many years uh, versus uh, a flip in 90 days, you're going to be in and out of that. And so those on what plan you're trying to execute ultimately determines where you're going to invest. And that's why we've done flips in 26 states is I'm not really concerned what the market's going to be in a year from now. I'm looking at it over the next three months. And of that, I'm looking at a discount to market value and I'm willing to do that almost anywhere. From that, and let's assume that we're talking a single family house that I'm looking to flip anywhere in the country. I've decided that that you know percentage of discount, 70% or 75% of market values, the number that I'm gonna go after. I would say the next factor is is there workforce to fix up those houses? Are you in a large enough MSA, a metropolitan statistical area, a city that has Home Depots? has enough painters, has enough contractors to go paint carpet, clean up your house. Uh, and then steer towards that. You know, if you're in the middle of Oklahoma, you know, you might be four hours away from the nearest contractor and they're going to charge you 10 times normal going rates. And it, it's infeasible for you to fix that house up on an appropriate budget. It's such a better way to look at it. And I think, you know, that's something that I've always taken is that, you know, a deal's a deal, regardless of the, I think people put too many parameters around like what a deal looks like, right? Instead of worrying about getting the best deal for the the uptick, right? And there's some properties that y'all are investing, you know, hotels, stuff like that. I'd imagine you're putting 10-year, five-year plans in act. And then the flips are a totally different scenario. So as a team, your company has to be super nimble in their in their views on investing and and create the cash flow right here, but also take the long-term gain on some properties too, right? Yeah. And that's, uh, like I said, there's three different kind of investment mm -hmm. models in which we operate under. We uh, have different funds within those models and those funds have different life cycles. And so, you know, Opportunity Zone, um, capital in the fund is it's, it's a 10 year fund. And so when you're looking at something in a 10 year lens, that is different things that I'm looking for. So uh, I mentioned it earlier, uh, infrastructure bond spending is that doesn't depend on what's happening in the economy. 
why keyed in on San Antonio is they have a couple billion dollars in projects that are coming down the pipeline that are funded from the state of Texas. You know, the UNESCO World Heritage Site that the Alamo and the missions just received is the state of Texas is spending five, six hundred million dollars on an Alamo Plaza redevelopment because they wanted this to be a more prominent uh, marquee location. Well, the state of Texas still has a lot of money and that money is going to be allocated and is going to be spent. When you know that money is spent, you have some kind of return of investment. In a traditional, private developers aren't going to spend half a billion dollars um, to make the plaza nicer, uh, but the state of Texas will. You know, University of Texas in Antonio putting a new downtown campus, uh, tearing down the old uh, detention jail facility, and so what you're doing is you have a jail jail being torn down and a university and a new school of cybersecurity and and the college of business being relocated to that campus. And so that hundreds of millions of dollars that is being invested into that Broadway corridor being redeveloped hemisphere park being, you know, uh, reinvested into San Pedro Creek. And so when you line up all of these things is that money does have a return. And so if you're looking at trailing data sets of what was office five years ago. Well, it's it's not accounting for what's the future is going to be as some amount of money, then there's going to be some return on investment. And so when I look at that as cities that are putting in money in streetcar programs, you know, uh, park redevelopments, just, you know, projects as a whole that don't depend on, you know, current uh, normal private developments because private developments, a new hotel announcement can or cannot happen depending on the economic factors. And so all of a sudden you have a black swan event like Corona COVID, you know, all of a sudden you go, ah, I'm not going to build my hotel right now. But the state of Texas is still going to spend that money on the Alamo Plaza redevelopment. Mm -hmm. they, they don't depend on the economic factors of whether they're going to do that. So that's why and how we invest into things that on a 10-year lens, if that happens because government projects are notoriously delayed. So, But if I say, hey, they're going to do that in three years, but they end up taking five years, within a 10-year lens, I'm still okay with that. Um, and that's where I factor in those, what lens, what plan am I trying to execute to then what is my comfort level of moving forward? If I'm planning to exit out of something in the next 24 to 36 months, I, I probably killed that project or, or needed a, a pretty big price uh, concession because the market has changed. And I think we've taken a big discount to that within this current Corona COVID state. And do you think from your point of view, obviously this is just your point of view, do you think a lot of people get in trouble and over leveraged in real estate because they don't stick to their plan or don't have one altogether and they're buying for ego or they're, they think, well, if I made 20 grand, if I bump up, you know, like I think this happens a lot. Oh, I made 40 grand, but if I bought this house then I could make 60 grand because they're not sticking in. I'm guilty. I'm just saying like, do you think that's a lot of why, like as a, as a team, like you have a plan and this is where you stick in or is it okay to kind of wishy wash your stuff when you're investing? Yeah. So obviously that's, I a hundred percent think people don't have a plan. They don't have, you know, their, uh, buy model there, you know, I, I use that term, the buy bucket, you know, or, or, um, you know, we have a certain set of parameters that we're willing to buy in, um, and that we're, it allows us to move quickly on the deals that do make sense to us because we've already kind of already vetted them out. There's oftentimes you'll hear, uh, you know, part of my team, I have an acquisition manager. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's cursing at the computer and he's like, obviously people don't want to make money. And so that margin of safety. So where what's happened years ago and, and recently, as you go to courthouse steps, trustee sales, foreclosure process, and we're sitting there and you're risking maybe 200,000, $300,000 cash to make a uh, $20,000. 
Well, that's a very low um, return on the $300,000 investment. And so when we look at that, it's like, it's just not in our margin safe. Other people, they're just looking exactly like you said, I want to make 20,000 a deal. I don't care about those percentages. Um, if I could lever that up 100% and it's infinity return. Uh, but what happens is there are cycles in real estate. It comes and goes and you don't know. And, and what is uh, this current uh, Corona situation is uh, not unprecedented uh, because there's been, you know, think of it and just call it disruption and market, you know, and, and decline in the market. There has been disruption before in business, you know, Netflix disrupted Blockbuster. Um, Blockbuster said, yeah, right. That's not going to be a thing. And now look at, you know, they don't exist. Kodak, uh, Timex, you know, there's, there's lots of examples of when disruption has, has quickly and rapidly changed the environment in which we're in. Uh, so has a disease uh, or virus like this shut down the world? No, that hasn't happened to this, this tune, but disruption has happened before. And you need to plan and put in that kind of margin of safety that there is some form of disruption. And if you get over levered, sometimes you get wiped out when, when you don't have that stuff built in. And, and, you know, uh, I, I just posted a quote, uh, earlier today. I love it. it says, I saw it right before the interview. <laughs> yeah. It says, you know, the best time to be, to be investing is when there's blood in the streets. Uh, even if it's your own blood, you know, if it's, uh, what, a somebody should make a picture of that. And that would be the shirt every investor would wear, you know, it, it's, you know, cause really what is investing that you're trying to take advantage of future benefits. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. Like the past helps you maybe determine which direction things are going, but the reality is past performance is not a direct reflection of whether the future is. And so if you're a investor, you're looking to try to take advantage of the future. And so when you look at that is when the market has a pullback, 10, 20, 30, 50, whatever percent that is, then that's probably a good time to be investing, regardless if you just got kicked in the teeth or not. It's perfect. The scary thing is because I'm ADD, I have two stories. I'll get you to tell that one at the end sure. I heard on a webinar, but I think this is a perfect switch. And this is funny because I just had a talk with this investor I help. What is the mindset that you've created as a company and within yourself? And we're going to transition to mindset and all that stuff that you are comfortable with letting revenue or a deal walk away and knowing that there's more deals. Cause the same thing I hear from every investor is, well, if I lose out on that deal, where am I going to find that other 20 grand? If I fire that client, cause I hate them, how am I going to replace that income? Cause they can't like, I'm just talking about like abundance, like where, you know, like where, where was that cultivated? What are, what are you telling yourself? Like, how do you live in a fact of like, there's always another deal around the corner. And that's like the number one problem I hear from every investor. Yeah. So, um, that's hard to, to, you know, cultivate it. It's something that you need to see, uh, the more time you're in real estate or, business investing or kind of, you know, building that is the deal of a lifetime happens about every other week. Um, and so understanding there's, there's different factors that go into that. So that deal of that lifetime and a deal of a lifetime for me, may be a terrible investment for you, mm. you know, and that's the other thing is it's not, and, and deals are not one size fits all as far as um, that's the, the big thing that driving in is, is to understand what is right for you 
you know, what's right for your execution, what's right for your risk factors, um, you know, your ability to weather certain storms, uh, uh, pullback and revenues. Um, and so and that's the big thing is everybody tries to say, well, this guy did that deal. And if, if I just did what he did along his coattails, then that would be a good deal. And I should go into it because they've had levels of success. And so that's the big shift is, is understanding who you are first, what your, um, and that's why I talk about having that plan is understanding and executing your plan is more critical to the deal than itself. Um, obviously, and as you get down the road, um, what I love about real estate is that you have a ton of ways to be creative about how to structure these deals. Mm -hmm. uh, deals and, and the terms can change throughout uh, the course of it. You know, as you're buying it, as you're, you know, uh, refinancing it, the way that you can change adaptive reuse of projects. Um, and so it's a process of reading a lot of books, getting experience to, to more deals, being associated with other people that are doing these that helps you change that mindset. And, and we were kind of talking earlier, um, one of those big books that's now probably on my top 10 or 15 is James Clear's Atomic Habits. Mm -hmm. um, and it was talking about is sometimes you don't like what you're doing. You know, you, you don't like maybe the client, you don't like responding to the, um, information, you know, the filling out the report, the weekly report, you're doing these other things that you just kind of don't like. Um, but you think about that and we talk about, you know, Kobe or Michael Jordan shooting free throws, thousands and thousands of free throws every single day, practicing that you know, elbow jump shot and then hitting it over and over and over and again to developing a level of mastery is you don't have to like everything that you do. And so from that, and, and for me, that was a, a big kind of aha because there was times I like novelty just as much as anyone else, an exciting new project, but then to be able to grind and do the same thing over and over and over and over again to develop a level of mastery. Now, how does that, you know, tap into mindset? Well, the mindset, and, and I believe that is everything in this world is a construct of human imagination. Mm. Think about this building that I'm sitting in, this Zoom software program that we're utilizing, the cars that are out on the street. Someone thought about that. Someone stood there, you know, for this particular building was about a hundred years ago as they sat down and said, you know what? I think that needs to be a building and it needs to look like this. It needs to be this tall and needs to be that. And they sketched it out and they drew it. And it was an idea before it became a reality. And so the, when you realize that everything kind of like the matrix is just comes from a thought. You think about it, you can create anything and everything in your life that you can, you know, your podcast construct your life. You know, so I remember years and years ago when I told my wife I was going to do private equity. I was going to do this private equity real estate company. And she said, well, how do you know how to do that? And I said, well, I'm going to read books on it. Somebody's already done it. No one was born an astronaut, but you can figure out how to do that by putting in the time and efforts to go through those steps and mechanisms and then create is what is your plan? What is your story? What is your ability and your mindset? And I just believe in Carol Dweck and Angela Duckworthy or Duck, you know, the grit and, and mindset is that you can learn anything if you're willing to put in the time and effort to do that. And that's where it comes into where the deal of a lifetime happens every other week is the fact that these deals are going to come through and it might be a single family house. It might be a hotel. It might be a combination of that, the, the job that you dreamed of, whatever that kind of looks like, but it's unique to you. And the more that you have some of your own plan figured out, the more you have the ability to execute on that when that opportunity presents itself.
That was gold, guys. Rewind, rewind that. But one thing I want to say about you is that there's something I noticed about your personality, and it's just secondhand. Like you love, you love growth, and like you've seen me over the couple months, and like I know you like when somebody gets in, gets their hands dirty, does takes action, and and that's what he's talking about, guys. He's talking about, you know, you didn't know what you know now, right? There was a there was a young Jake that that had to read and, and, you know, you talk about that all the time, just knowledge level and getting around those right people. You know, I think proximity is power. I know that my life's changed a lot since I've met, you know, people like, you know, you and, and Jake Harris and Templeton Walker. And, and, you know, it just, it just takes your mind to a different place. And so, you know, from a young guy that's getting started, like how do they, how do they earn the right, you know, as, as Matt would say, to be in your space? What do they need to show up and do? And what mindset are like you looking at for like team members that come in and work for you? Like, cause it's different. You're the boss and like everybody may not be at your level, but like, what are you looking to see from people that spend time around you and, and work with you and stuff like that? Like, you know, who do they need to become is what I'm asking basically. Well, I think attitude is the most important thing. Um, and like you said, is action is I've had, you know, I don't know, probably into the hundreds of people that have asked me these questions. How do you do this? How do you get to this place? And um, the reality is, is there's only maybe a handful of people that have ever really taken the action. Um, you know, you can kind of lead the horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And, and sometimes that was, uh, when I was younger, I would be frustrated with that is there's people that, you know, I loved trying to get them to see the light and to do this thing. And, um, I, the older or wiser I've, I've, uh, become is that's not the right path for them necessarily. Sometimes you have to discover your own path. Um, and, and oftentimes when people tell you to do go this path, um, it is because that's their path. And so when I look at this is um, I'm willing to, to give people, you know, uh, some initial insights and things that kind of helped, you know, get me to those next levels uh, from what, and then to garner more time is how, how do they, are they doing that creating and taking action? Are they, you know, have a good attitude uh, that's willing to do that, that things aren't necessarily beneath them. Um, and then, you know, adding value. And so when I look at this is, you know, years ago I was, I was out of the army. I was uh, bartending at a, uh, a country club. Uh, I wanted to be around in that proximity of people that were successful. And um, I didn't have the $75,000, you know, membership, you know, uh, initiation fee and the $1,500 a month that it costs to be part of the country club. But um, I was willing to take a job there and I, I worked and I, I learned and I went to to school to become a bartender to, you know, and kind of convinced my way into talking to somebody that talked to somebody else that, and, uh, you know, it's not very hard to pour Coors Lights. Um, you don't need to go to very much schooling for that. And those were like, the reality is like, I had all these wild concoctions of drinks that I knew how to make and 99% of everyone just drank Coors Lights. And it was like, Oh, this is pretty easy. Um, but it was in that proximity and it was being around those people that then, you know, they gave out information and it was, you know, when I wanted to get into real estate, the future, uh, you know, they said for, for, you know, the advice that they had offered me was to get into construction, uh, construction and the people that are in the trades, um, have the shortest learning curve because they know what stuff costs. They know how things go together. They know the sequencing of them. And every contractor wants to make as much money as possible. And I don't care what you do in real estate, there's going to be a contractor involved. If it's moving dirt, fixing a kitchen, building a hotel, there's going to be a contractor involved. The more intimate knowledge you have of the construction space, the more uh, a leg up that you're going to have on other people. And so they said, go in and start doing construction. Uh, I interviewed 
for construction uh, for an estimator position. I knew one of the guys at the country club that uh, was hiring and I, you know, talked to him. I wasn't really qualified, you know, hadn't finished the schooling and didn't have the experience um, and they weren't hiring me. It kind of pissed me off. Um, and then, so I went back to the guy and I was like, man, like, here's this thing. There's this great position. And he said, why don't you work for free? Like you have extra time. Like, why don't you just like, and I was just, it was that, that light bulb moment that it was like, I'm in this for the millions of dollars in the future of what this education is going to give me. What does it matter what they're paying you today? And so to get over that to me was stop thinking about today execute your long-term plan. And when you're willing to look at that long-term plan is that being in that proximity and having that construction experience is what I wanted to get around those people and to do those things is what I really wanted to do. And so that led into, and you know what? I came to, uh, to, to the guy and I told him, Hey, I was like, you know, I'll come work for free. I can give you three days a week between the days that I'm not working uh, at the bar. Um, it'll be tight, but I can make it work. And I want to show you that I can do it because I believe in myself. I was like, I don't care any job that exists. I can figure it out. Um, which is interesting because I did get the job. He hired me, he gave me some money and I walked in and they said, great, here's the estimating position. Go do some takeoffs. And I was like, I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> And, and was this was this back in the day when there was YouTube or no? Oh, before Google, before YouTube, <laughs> before anything like I'm just like, hey, oh, you know, like they wanted me to do some hey, takeoffs. Can you, you give me a form? Hey, do you watch uh, The Office ever? When 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 do you watch The Office or no? Yeah, I've seen. And the he office said he says Jim, go give me a rundown, and Jim spends like the whole day trying to figure out what a rundown is. That's what I yeah. feel like's happening to you. Oh, hundred percent. Like I walked in, they're like, and I was like, I have no idea what takeoffs are and what I need to be doing. And, uh, but you know what? They gave me a sheet, uh, and it basically is takeoffs, the quantities of each one of the elements, how much flooring, how much baseboard, how much paint, how much cabinets, how much whatever of this particular project. Um, but, uh, I got into it. I figured it out. I, estimated and bid millions of dollars worth of construction projects were awarded many of those and then leveraged that into a superintendent role and kind of an assistant project manager before I went out on my own and started doing things and flipping houses in the early 2000s. Like the whole time in my head, I'm already sending that to like three people I'm helping right now. Like, cause that's the conversation we have. And, and it really shows me like, that you're, you're just a figure it out guy. I mean, like that is like, I know it's a terrible phrase, but like, you're just like, I'm going to get in here uncomfortable as shit for free. I'm already tired. Cause I already worked this week and then look, you know, the, what's happening. I'm sure that, you know, it's been a long road and, but like, I would imagine having the unique experience of seeing it from the inside out that allows you to assess flips and just your business as a whole, you can catch things that I would imagine other guys that haven't done that probably don't, that stuff doesn't slide by you. Yeah, right. And I think part of it is, you know, building out a team of the people that I do. So I have construction managers now and an acquisition manager that I've built these systems. And so some of them, um, I told them, you know, I cannot convey all this knowledge in here to you it's just going to require you to do some of it. And, and it was funny because the other day I was, uh, I was laughing. We were, we were going to uh, grab some food and they were talking about how these appraisers, you know, appraisal blew up this deal. And I was just like, yeah, that happens a lot. <laughs> um, you have literally some random person's opinion that you've worked your butt off putting together this deal and fixing up and doing these other things. And then some random person queued up out of a computer has a $5,000 less valuation on the thing and, and it, it hurts your deal. 
And you're just like, what? That just doesn't make sense. And you're like, yeah, you know what? It happens. There's been many a times I've, I've contemplated, uh, you know, uh, trying to connect with mafia like, you know, Guidos <laughs> to go, you know, chase down appraisers. Um, but that's the reality is, you know, there's so many things that are outside of your control, but put those systems together. And, you know, I, I cannot convey, you know, decades worth of experience all into one thing. Sometimes you just got to experience it, you know, getting taken advantage of, you know, somebody stealing uh, deposits or money. It sucks, but it happens. Um, you know, uh, water damage, pipes breaking, things that are just going to happen in general that probably would have stressed me out. And, you know, it did stress me out a lot when I got started. And I know our team gets stressed out about that. But the reality is, is that, you know, you have to build those into a certain margin of safety is, you know, if it's your only deal, then that feels like it's uh, the end of the world. Um, but the reality is, is that um, in time, you learn, you know, you you get through this and, you know, think about it you know, long-term, what's your overall plan? Um, you know, when I lost everything. So I, you know. So let's, uh, yeah, this is my favorite part of the interview. Let's talk about when you lost everything. It's, it seems like the, uh, it seems like the typical story here is all my guys I know that are crushing it really took it in the chin. Well, yeah, 0708. I, I, I lived exactly these examples being over levered, you know, investing and betting for the come, you know, I'd never seen in my lifetime a pullback in real estate values. You know, it had been up, 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 up and up. Um, and so from investing in the early 2000s until 07, 08, you know, I'd become a millionaire before 30. And I was like, that was my goal. Like I was just focused on that. I didn't, hang out with other people. I didn't go out to dinners or, you know, party or do anything like that. I was myopically focused on my goal is to become a millionaire before 30. And I think that's been one of my, my superpowers is I am like a heat seeking missile persistent. Mm -hmm. Um, you ask my wife, that's probably why we're married is because I pursued her. Um, I was just like, no, you're the one. And she's like, you're crazy. And I was like, I know. <laughs> I go, the reality is everyone's crazy once you get to know them. 100% everyone's crazy once you shame. get to know them. But so now back to losing everything is so, yeah, I didn't put in those margins of safety. I didn't come and... and uh, allow for a pullback in the market. Um, I didn't model them, didn't look at it. I thought I was smarter than everyone else. You know, like how, bah, whatever, you know, I'm buying it at 10% under market. The, the real estate would have to go down 10%. You know, when's that ever happened before? Um, so a few things happened during that was, uh, I remember saying a prayer, dear Lord, can I please have no money? That would be awesome. Like, cause I was so overwhelmed. Like I was so negative. Like I was wishing for no money, praying that I had no money because I was, you know, so over levered and everything had fallen down. I was in Phoenix. Home prices fell 50, 60, 70%. I think at one point down to 80% in value. I, um, and so a portfolio that was worth millions of dollars and I was a millionaire, I was uh, no dollar an error, negative, you know, millionaire kind of thing. And so um, when, I, when I came back, uh, I, I picked myself back up and I said, you know what, this is what I want to do. I still want to do real estate. I still want to get in this. I dusted myself off and I said, well, what did I do right and what did I do wrong? And it was kind of this introspective kind of look at, at myself as an individual. And um, the reality is um, how much those relationships that I kind of neglected and I didn't foster was what I really um, 
didn't you know, uh, develop and, and foster over that time period. And so while I was transactional and becoming a millionaire, I, I felt like I was bankrupt in other areas of my life as far as um, my health. Um, I was, so let's see, I was about 80 pounds heavier than I am right now. So I was 260, 265. 260? Yeah, 260, I cannot imagine you at 260, bro. Yeah, so um, yeah, I was... Uh, enjoying the good life, you know, um, I was overweight. Um, I was kind of an ass, um, to family, friends, relationships. Um, uh, and you know, when I looked at that introspective is that, Hey, um, I need to kind of retool a lot of things in my life. And so I went back and I got, I went back to school, um, went to, you know, to grad school, part of the thing. So I end up getting a, a master's degree in international real estate and finance because, you know, I said, Hey, this is what I want to do long-term. This is what I, I really want. You know, I went and got my broker's license, um, you know, finished through some of these things, mechanisms, things that taught me more um, and spent a lot of time. Uh, I remember, uh, and this is exactly when Tim Ferriss's four hour work week came out. Um, and I read Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. I would go to the bookstore. I didn't have money to buy the book, but I would read it in the bookstore in the little lounge every day for a few hours. I'd walk over to the bookstore and read Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. Stop. You're, yeah. you're dead serious. Dead serious. <laughs> and to me, it was, it's not working four hours in a week. It's how do you 10X part of your things? And so to me, that was one of those big metamorphic type books. So Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Tim Ferriss, Four Hour Work Week, um, and then subsequent kind of other books, you know, Carol Dweck's Growth uh, your Mindset and, you know, establishing a, a growth mindset in there. Um, and James Clear's Atomic Habits is another one of those yeah. is that you – and I talked about this and, and, you know, really kind of round out your plan is like overall what you're trying to do is your goals should be a result of the systems that you have in place is because you don't rise to the level of your goals, you default to the level of your systems. And so if your systems aren't going to produce your goals, that's the problem is that you're building a machine, your daily, every single day that does this, 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 and this that when it comes out should be your goals. And that's why you need goals to set the direction in which you're going in your life to execute your plan, to execute your whatever. If you don't have goals, if you don't have a plan, then you're like um, Alice in Wonderland and you're just like, which way do you go? It doesn't really matter because you haven't accepted. And it doesn't even have to be necessarily the right direction, but you have to set a direction and then maybe you pivot. And then you'd be like, you know what? I hate running. You know, I don't want to run a marathon. I don't do. And so it allows you to kind of determine what's right for you, but you have to start with what direction do you want to go establish and build those plans. And that for me was because of losing everything is that unknown kind of willy nilly. And then how do I get focused in every single aspect of my life? It's not just about making money. How do I get better about developing a plan for my health? How do I get better about developing plans for my relationship? How do I get better about this? Because every single one of those kind of pillars of life, you can put together a plan for, and you can create a direction and a thing that you want to be working on so that if you're better at X, Y, and Z, how do you build a system to get there? And that's really the results for me is, um, you know, failing miserably in one area that also was, I think, uh, a bankruptcy of my other areas of my life. So I just, this is for you. This isn't for the audience, but I think it's hilarious. That's why I laugh so much. You're the third guy I've interviewed. Uh, that's a, runs a big company and maybe a millionaire now. I don't tend to know what people make, but got destroyed in uh the crash and read four hour work week and that shifted it <laughs> i mean like it's almost like i could take the clips and i could pack and it'd be like by the way that was aaron and musa and and fuck it you know it's like it's crazy to me 
because it's funny. I just read Atomic Habits last week. I thought it was fantastic. I thought the part about the British cyclist was next level. Like I thought that like, you know, the pillow they're sleeping on, you're changing the color in the van, like these little things that nobody thinks about that really set the groundwork. And it's funny because there's a lot of days and I would imagine you go through the same thing where I don't want to do a lot of the things I do, but I've created a system that this is what, this is how I feel great at the end of the day. And, you know, a lot of that's wrapped around the Ironman training and and just stuff I need to get done. But like, regardless if I want to do it, I don't want to start it. But once I do and I get done, I'm like, man, I feel great. And that's what you're saying. Like the way you put that was fantastic. I can't, I wish everybody rewind that. Like your habits are one thing, but your systems are your default. And like, so if your system is I get up and I train for an hour and a half, like that's what the fuck I do. And like, and you might not want to do it every day, but like when you get to the end of the week, you're going to go, man, I got it done. That was great. How many workouts have you regretted doing? Zero. Zero. <laughs> I, I killed myself yesterday and it hurt and we rode hard because I rode with some people that are way better than me. And dude, you want to talk about an ego when they're like half a mile in front of you and you think you're hot shit. And, and then you know what? I kicked their ass on the way back. Cause like, I was like, and you know what? I felt so good after it. Like, it's like, but it was like a huge ego check. Like, well, and that's one of the other things is I think those life hacks that you're looking for is getting around people that are better than you. Yeah. You know, and that's been the, the next kind of evolution beyond once uh, figuring out, hey, just some of these pillars is, is, is playing bigger, is getting around people that are doing it. And, and at the end of the day, you'll look and say, man, those guys are putting their pants on one leg at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys, and there's been several people that I've been around that I was just like, hey. Damn, like what? Like I'm smarter than that, dude. How the hell is he like 10x more successful than I am? You know, like what is going on? And so that's where it also comes back to we 100% limit ourselves. We're self-limiting. Is when I I talked about at the beginning of this is um, your... Everything's a construct of your imagination. Whatever you believe is the reality. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is being around some of those other people is they just believe something else about them. Mm-hmm. They believe something about themselves. They believe that a hundred million dollar deal is normal. They can easily do that. Um, and so when I've got around some of those people where I was just like, wait, you don't dig into the level that I do for the same flip and you just kind of do these other things and you're doing like hundred million dollar deals. And I was like, so, and there's often a quote that I reference that someone is doing exactly what you want to be doing with less because they just tried to do it. Boom. And I was like, there's people that come to this country. I have a lot of friends that are immigrants that come to this country with no money with no family relationships, with no anything, and they just go out and they go do it. And they get just through hustle is um, they're willing to kind of put the chips on the table. And I feel like that's one of the, the biggest things that Americans have as a disadvantage to them is they're too soft. Mm-hmm. They're, they're too comfy. As they're butter. Too, yeah, as yeah. butter. Yeah. And it's showing itself right now. Soft as a freaking butter. And you look at, you look at, dude, you look at people like Gary Vee and immigrants, bro, that have built billion dollar businesses. They had no complaining. They just, they're just so happy. You know what's true? I'll tell you this because you're building hotels. And I said this to somebody yesterday. I have been in hotels and restaurants and restaurants for 20 years. I have worked alongside a Honduras, Venezuela, and Mexican my entire life since I was 17. These guys have three more jobs than I do. They've got a thousand acres back in Mexico and they work 15 hours a day, 16 hours a day. I've never heard them complain one word, one word. Yeah. And that's where you look at that long-term, you know, focus is, um, you know, you think about that 
is um, they'll work seven days a week, Mm -hmm. 12, 15 hours a day, every day, multiple jobs to send money back to their family, to Mexico, take care of people because, you know, they just think they've made it. They made it to the States. You know, they're getting that chance to grind and to to make that money. Um, And so when I look at that is, um, one, we're just incredibly blessed to be born in the United States out of the gate. You know, as far as you already won the lotto of life, being born in, in United States of America. Now, you know, doesn't matter what side of the political, you know, aisle you're on, you've already won the lottery. If you're white, you're female, you're minority, just being in America, you've kind of made it. Now it's up to you to what you do with it. And that's why I, earlier I talked about attitude. Attitude's the number one thing, you know, attitude and then action. Um, so what are you looking at and take that is this is the land of opportunity, but they're not going to hand it to you. You got to go out and you got to hustle. You got to get it. Um, and you know, so that's where I just bet on myself many times over is that I believe that I can figure it out um, with, with everything, you know, as far as, and so that's kind of my, my few senses of, or secrets is persistence, betting on myself, and we're going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's what I do day in and day out. How much time do you have? I want to respect that. Uh, I don't know. I got a little bit more time here and then I got some okay. other calls. Sounds good. That's why I know you love my saying that I came up with. Uh, I didn't come up with it, but I stole it from somebody else. But I know it clicks on your watch every morning because you sent it to me. Nobody cares work harder. It wasn't until I, it wasn't until I got that. But something I wanted to, that's always stuck with me about you, and maybe you're in a position now, two things I want to touch on. I find you, out of any developer I've met, you're romantic about real estate a little bit. Like I've seen your office, like you refurbished a hundred year old bank. Like there is a, like, did you earn the right with, with successes to be romantic about it? Cause you know, a lot of people tell you in books, like it's just a property. It's just a vehicle. Don't romanticize about it. Right. But I know that about you. Like you get giddy when your elevator parts get delivered. (laughs) You sent me the picture. I remember it. Like, but did you earn the right to get there because you have been successful in your career or you think that's something that you can cultivate from the beginning? And what I'm saying is like, you're still living in your parameters of the construction budget, but I, I find you to be, you know, like you love real estate. Well, and that's part of the thing is that I, I realized that that's, that's who I am is, you know, that's me is that's um, my story, my plan, my vision. And so um, what I love, and, and I think it probably goes back to, you know, my origins is um, my family, a family of four, and then a family of five, we lived in a 16 foot camp trailer. Um, and we refurbished a house that was built in 1888. that didn't have a foundation, sat on rocks, the old farmhouse in California. And we jacked up the house and put poured a new foundation under it and fixed up uh, an old farmhouse. And so when I was a little kid, you know, like we took baths and wheelbarrows, you know, we had a garden hose that was, was the shower. Um, and I, I think about that now as a 16 foot camp trailer, a family of four and then five, you know, it's like, that's small. Um, you know, we're talking, you know, maybe a hundred square feet. You know, most people's bedrooms are bigger than that. And we had a, ha- a family of five living in that. Um, and so to me, real estate has uh, and buildings have stories in them, hundreds of years of stories, hundreds of years of, of um, experiential components. And where I believe in humans, I believe in, in story telling process of that and we get to rekindle and take advantage of that of course we build new buildings and and that will be for new generations of of cities but you know uh, i've talked to you about this but go visit europe 
go visit, you know, back east and you see these cities of hundreds of years and the evolution of that city with Gothic to Baroque to, you know, classic and neoclassicisms and other types of architectural structures that you can see throughout a city's history. And then you boil down into that building. You know, one of the historic buildings that we have in in San Antonio used to be a bank building. Actually, I like bank buildings just because of the way that they were constructed, Mm -hmm. have multiple bank buildings. Um, It was one at the the early 1900s to show security and, you know, um, look at, you know, how safe it is to invest into this bank and look at how a little bit opulent, but also the type of construction you built. Well, then think about people that they met their husband or wife there. They got their first job there. They, you know, uh, and how that translates out and to be able to rekindle some of that is you can't, manufacture that you can't manufacture history and that's also when you get into those cities like san antonio is you have a 300 year old spanish colonial city that is you know culture they have it in spades what's the future of this and so that's where i get to be a caretaker for some of these pieces of real estate or properties for a certain period of time that will then continue on for hopefully another hundred years uh how many stories, you know, good, bad, uh, and indifferent in between that, that, that real estate becomes part of their story, uh, of, you know, life. I love it. That's passion boys and girls. Uh, so leave them with this last story you said on the webinar, I thought I, I've told I 30 people this, cause we're going through a time right now. Um, you know, a lot of people are unsure and you told the story about when Lehman Brothers fell and they tried to find the CEO for the residential, uh, the real estate company for Blackstone. Yeah. So and that was Gray. like such a point in it. Like I was like, I got off the call. I was like, holy shit, we're going to be all right. Yeah. Well, so yeah. So John Gray was at lunch in Chicago some years ago and he told the story about, so he likes, to, you know, he goes out to dinner with his wife. And so Blackstone, so Jonathan Gray is, is head of real estate for Blackstone and is kind of queuing up to be the... How much do they manage, Jay? <laughs> like uh, all of billions, it. all yeah, of it, yeah. yeah it's, so it's know, not like a small job, boys and girls. Is what you yeah, no, like literally they are the world's largest real estate holder in the world. Like most houses, most office, most industrial, most everything, Blackstone is the largest real estate holder in, in you know planet Earth. Um, so... Think about that in your name, normal real estate. What are the odds that something is going wrong, uh, wrong within a portfolio of billions of square feet of, of real estate? Um, odds are 100% all the time there's some kind of problem going on. So he doesn't bring his phone with him to dinner or out to because his wife doesn't like him receiving phone calls. And so he... Went off to dinner, wherever he was going, charity event. I don't remember exactly what it was. But Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns failed. And this is like, oh, no. Like, institutes, 100-year-old you know, institutes are failing. The world is ending. And nobody can get a hold of Jonathan Gray. Um, so John Gray, you know, his boss, Steve Schwartzman's, um, you know, uh, whatever it takes book and, you know, king of capital. Uh, it was able to track him down, find the restaurant or the event that he's at and calls and connects with somebody and says, go find him and get him on a phone. And he goes and gets on the phone. Lehman Brothers has failed. Maybe it's the end of the world. He goes and tells his wife, hey, I have to go into work. This is bad. It's real bad. It's not like an overflowing toilet in Beijing. It's this is, you know, So he went into the office and you know what he did is he got out a yellow sheet of paper and he started uh, writing down all the opportunities if this is not the end of the world. If this is not the end of the financial world, what opportunities lie? And so then one of the things, the question was, did the single family rental portfolio, what is invitation homes? Was that one of the ideas? And 
you know, that was com- something completely new to institutional capital. And, you know, they were on the forefront of that. Um, so when we look at it, with distress comes opportunity. But when there's a recession, there's going to be opportunities and things that maybe didn't exist previously. Um, the people that are most prepared um, are the ones that are going to be lucky, you know, for those opportunities when they, they get presented to them because they're looking at it. And uh, as that quote earlier is that, uh, you know, the best times to buy when there's blood in the street, even if it's your own blood, uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's still worth, you know, buying and looking for those opportunities. Human nature is to pull back, is to get, you know, uh, you know, defensive get you know past the defensive and then start looking at the offensive opportunities that will be presented in this this new world this guy's got me fired up i I love this guy so much uh thank you jake how do they get a hold of you how do they find you uh if they want to connect yeah so uh instagram uh jake dot real estate um, we're actually getting ready to launch uh, a new platform called Catching Knives, uh, catching-knives.com. Uh, that's, uh, I'm working on a book on that, uh, a guide to investing in distressed commercial real estate. Uh, and then we'll probably, you know, launch a podcast with that later as far as do a couple different uh, seasons uh, focused on real estate debt businesses and other things so um all that information should be there and i mean i i share most everything on the, that instagram jake dot real estate um uh at instagram and harris dash bay is my my you know parent company what we do all day every day all right and we'll put those in the show notes jake thank you so much guys and if you like this uh share it send it around but thank you so much jake appreciate it thank you austin Thank you for listening to Construct Your Life with Austin Lenny. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to start constructing your life by taking immediate action on what you learned. For show notes, resources, and more information on -on one-on-one coaching with Austin, visit constructyourlifepodcast.com.